Hey, futurists, this is Matamore. This is Justin. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode, The Future of Reality. This is, for us, one of our favorite all-time episodes because we get to go deep into a lot of the philosophical questions that have been on our mind and that we've been meaning to share with you all for quite some time. Questions around consciousness, free will, higher dimensions, quantum uncertainty, and of course, the nature of reality itself. If you find this podcast valuable, hit subscribe so you never have to worry about missing an episode. And if Hence the Future is one of your favorite podcasts, please rate and review us on iTunes. Justin and I read and appreciate every single review. And without further ado, we hope you enjoy the future of reality. Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Justin Clark. And I'm Adam Cronin. And today we're discussing the future of reality. So that means we'll be addressing how mankind has perceived reality in the past, how mankind receive, perceives reality right now, and how our perceptions of reality might change going into the future as we continue to make scientific, spiritual, philosophical and um, technological progress. But first, let's define reality. So, Matamore, how do you define reality? Right, so if you look up the definition of reality, it says, reality is defined as the world or the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. But this definition isn't really that helpful because it doesn't paint the picture of what the real world or the real cosmos looks like. And when most people think of reality, I think they're referring to the world of forms. So, you know, this is a table. We are humans. We're talking to each other right now. This is what's real. But whenever you delve in deeper to what's actually going on, the actual functionality by which we create our perception of reality, you realize that things aren't quite what meets the eye. For instance, this table, which seems so nice and sturdy, if you actually figure out what's going on, it's basically like there are all these uh, electrons and particles that are moving mm-hmm. so rapidly that it feels solid. But you know, similar to how a fan seems solid because it's moving so quickly, but what's really going on is something that's much different than what we perceive through the senses. So right. if I had to give a definition of how I would define reality, and I can expand on that, I would say reality equals consciousness plus its contents. Okay. So basically you're saying that reality is um, the objective truth, but we pers- basically what humans and any other sort of creature that can have some sort of consciousness that is sort of an approximation of reality. Like we can only get as close yeah. as like our mind lets us basically. Yeah. Well, uh, from my view, what we are most sure of is consciousness because, you know, there's the famous saying, I think therefore I am Descartes, mm-hmm. cogito ergo sum. But I, I would actually just say that the I am part is the part that we know that we're the most uh-huh. certain of because right. We're experiencing things right now, and whether we're in a simulation, whether we're just a brain sitting in a vat, 
that aliens have created our reality, whether we're in the matrix, yeah. like no matter what you say is true about what's going on, the fact that we are experiencing things right now, that we are essentially the universe, like looking in at itself or that, that we're some sort of process of, of experiencing, that's mm -hmm. what we're the most certain of. So consciousness right. is our base level of what we're most certain of. And then anything that, that exists within con the conscious realm, anything that we can experience, that's also mm -hmm. part of what's going on. So if I were to define what we know to be real, I would say it's consciousness and its contents. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I had a pretty similar definition. I think it might just be worded a different way. And it's basically the... How, so it's the subjective experience of individuals, because like you're saying, we only know our own experience. We can't truly know something else's experience. We can try to know something else's experience. Like I can try to know your experience, but I haven't lived your life. Mm -hmm. I don't know your childhood. I don't know like how you grew up exactly. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, that. It's basically saying the same thing, um, I think. But, oh, go ahead. Yeah, and I, and I think it's, it's important to draw a distinction that we're not solipsists, right? So it's not like we think that I'm the only real person and everyone else is just a figment of my imagination. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess that could, could be true. But it's more that all beings that are having these questions about what is real that we're all conscious beings. So it seems like consciousness itself is sort of the base level by which we are all creating our perception of the world. Mm -hmm. So here's a side note question. What, what are your thoughts on having some sort of unified consciousness? Like, is it possible for people to get into states where there's some sort of a connection between the two? So it's like you're experiencing reality together or a whole group of people experiencing reality together. So yeah. it's almost like you have your own consciousness and its contents, but do you think you can have like multiple consciousness? Yeah, so I have a, I have a lot of thoughts on this. So first of all, from a scientific perspective, if you look at where science is still confused about what's going on, it's because our grand theory of everything isn't quite complete. We haven't mm -hmm. quite figured out how to fit gravity into the equation of, mm -hmm. of what else is going on. And string theory poses some interesting ways of solving that. But people still aren't satisfied with, with what is going on. Mm -hmm. But if you add consciousness to the equation, lots of scientists have said that that could be the missing link. And we don't know how. Oh, interesting. It, we don't know how it fits in exactly. But a lot of the, the mathematics would work out if you added another element. And that element that's missing might be consciousness. And, I mean, from quantum physics, we've realized that we've reached the limits as far as what we can learn by cutting things into smaller and smaller pieces. Because we have reached the point now with the Hadron Collider that the pieces that we have, so why do we create the Hadron Collider? We created mm -hmm. it because we've basically gotten to the point where the particles that we're measuring are smaller than the particles of light that are required for us to see what's going on. Because the way that we see what's going on yeah. is that light bounces back and it's refracted to our, 
to our cornea. Right. And so with the Hadron Collider, we basically are squeezing the wavelengths to be as narrow as possible so that we can see what's going on. Mm-hmm. But for us to go deeper than we already have with the Hadron Collider, we would need so much energy that it could, you know, there's just no uh-huh. way, I mean, at least in the near term that we can do it. Um, right. So I think part, I think what that uh, clue that's, that's given by that experiment is that our perceiving might be some fundamental elementary particle of what's going mm. on. So I do think in that sense that it's quite likely that consciousness exists on its own. It's not just some like side effect of brains. It is some 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 part of the universe mm-hmm. in a similar way to how a, the electromagnetic force is a fundamental part of the universe that sort of pervades right. all things. A- another thought that I have as far as the question of is consciousness real outside of just, you know, each person's, you know, subjective experience, like is it some real overarching thing? is I think we first need to consider the fact that we are earthlings first and foremost. So when we when you look at earth from far away, it's this pale blue dot and we've talked about the Gaia hypothesis which I think is just so clearly true. It's it's almost like arrogant to think that it's not true, like to not think that earth and its atmosphere is one organism that is evolving and and sort of forging its own path in a coherent way. So mm-hmm. I think when people have these in, incredible mystical experiences or when you're deep in meditation and you suddenly feel this sense of oneness with the universe or if you're on psychedelics and you feel a similar sense of oneness with the universe or if you're having right. a near-death experience and all of a sudden you feel that incredible like mystical experience or even if you're like you know skydiving, there are these different circumstances where you have this profound sense of belonging and co-creatureliness and Mm -hmm. i think what that might be is that might be the overarching consciousness of gaia of earth so one thing that i'm quite not sure of is how much of this unified conscious experience is specific to earth and it's like we're tapping into the mother earth energy that is figuring out right. what's going to go on and like basically the conductor of the orchestra versus it being a truly cosmic um, experience. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I've, so you could even take that a step further. So we, all the earthlings put together, maybe contribute to some sort of universal, universal earthling consciousness whether you right. want to call it guy like wh- however you want to define gaia whether it's an organism or a system of a super complex system of a lot of things going on you know there's obviously something but what if what you call gaia is part of the cosmic consciousness so it's exactly like, it's so it is to the cosmos as we are to it right so yeah so i think that is likely to be true I think it would also be arrogant to think that we're the only conscious beings in the whole cosmos, that there's yeah. nothing beyond Earth that's conscious. But other conscious beings might be of a different qualia. They might not be exactly the same as what we, what we feel to be conscious. So I'm, yeah. I'm not sure. And frankly, I think that's one of the great mysteries of, of what is going on right now, is that we don't know how big of a role consciousness plays in the cosmos or if it's more specific to to Earth, 
um, or if it's specific to the individual. This is something where science hasn't really had any hard answers yet. Right. Yeah, I mean, just doing the preparation for this podcast, I found myself asking more questions than yeah. finding answers. It's amazing how little answers there are to, I mean, just Googling, like, what is reality? What's the nature of reality? Like, there are some books about it, but mm. it, it doesn't seem like people have come to a conclusion. Right. And it's the definition is limited by our own vocabulary. And if you right. think about, like, the true space of true like of things that are true in the in the universe our language can't cover or see my theory is our language can't cover even a fraction of that right like we, right. we need to have a completely different way of thinking about the nature of reality or describing the nature of reality totally and and i think that's uh you know, that's something we've talked about on a couple episodes of the podcast where it's like anytime you're trying to describe that which is ineffable, that which cannot be effed, cannot be mm -hmm. described, right. um, you know, that we're basically slicing what's true and differentiating it from the rest of what's true. And by doing so, we are, by definition, not describing mm -hmm. the whole of what is true. Right. Yeah, so I think so. I think we definitely need to talk more about this. But and, sorry, let should... me just say one other other okay. thing there that I think is relevant. I think as far as how we might be able to more closely figure out or or realize what what is true, one aspect that I think could provide a really interesting avenue is virtual reality, because right. if you think about how technology is going to develop in the future. And if you combine that with how AI might be able to create a better model of reality than what we have mm -hmm. currently, I could imagine a situation where, you know, rather than meditating for 20 years or taking psychedelics or maybe in combination with those, you can basically go into this virtual reality world and you can toggle between like, okay, now let's experience what it's like to be a bat. And it's like, you can like, you know, it won't uh -huh. be perfect, obviously, but it can put you into this mindset where you're flying around where you're like eco-locating. So maybe rather than that, maybe like your vision is more like strobe lights, like as you're, you're re receiving the sound waves and that which uh -huh. is louder is like, like that which has harder surfaces, you're more able to sense and perceive. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, okay, now let's go into what it's like to be a tree. And it's like a much slower time scale. And it's like you can like sense what's going on throughout the entire forest. And the so mm -hmm. I think VR could be a great way of us in the future being able to perceive reality where our language fails us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. And this kind of gets to the question of how how is reality perceived? And what I wanted to talk about a little bit as you know, as we talked about in the beginning of the podcast, is how did mankind perceive reality previously? Mm -hmm. Because in my mind, well, and you know, neuroscientists and anthrop anthropologists mind, the actual brain structure of our ancestors hasn't, or the brains of our ancestors hasn't really changed that much from where we are today. Right. And we just need to like how how did they perceive reality that was different from today and my thought is since the brain is relatively the same 
the, there's a difference in the actual like neuronal connections that have taken place throughout time. So previously our ancestors were in tribes and super connected with nature. And we've gotten to this point where today it's more of an individualistic perspective of reality. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think you're right. And when humans were first evolving to be humans, it stands to reason that their version of reality was much sim more similar to, let's say, how a wolf would perceive reality or how like mm -hmm. a chimp or it's more into in line with the natural way of viewing things. Mm -hmm. And when we think about how that changed going into more modern times, the example that comes to mind for me are the Romans and the Celts, the Gallic people during Caesar's Gallic Wars. Because one thing that was interesting is that the Romans were the most civilized people of the time. They were all about law and order and math and reason and, and mm -hmm. all these things. And the Gallic people, by contrast, they were led by Druids, which were basically like, you know, shamanistic people that were all about nature they would sense nature they would learn from nature what to eat and it was very spiritual and mystical and the people themselves were more what the romans would call barbaric they would they would mm. go into these crazy they would get like blood lust like like animals right. they would go into war and they would just absolutely fuck shit up and they would <laughs> i mean they were um you know to the romans eyes they were like scared about from these people uh -huh. but what's interesting is that the closer the tribes were to the romans the more roman like they would get so you know they'd start drinking wine they'd get a little soft they'd get a little bit used to the luxuries they wouldn't right. be quite as crazy in battle um and then the further off you but they would also get the benefits of having more law and order and, and um, you know they'd have a more stable government and that that sort of thing so I think really what happened over our development is that we traded that barbaric or, you know, barbaric is like the negative side of yeah. it, but being in tune with nature and really being one with the animals and the, all, you know, all of the elements of the earth, we traded that for the system of law and order. And we know what's best and, and this is the way yeah. things are done. And, and we can actually master nature and we can keep nature in check and we can pour <laughs> concrete over everything. And it's like, oh my and there's obviously good things and bad things to both of them. And I think what we're seeing now is we are seeing a little bit of a return to our initial more natural selves. I think that's like the new green movement is sort of moving in that direction. Yeah. I feel like the fifties and the sixties were, like the peak disconnection from nature. It's like yeah. pouring just like mass industrialization and nobody really knowing or caring about the connection with nature. And like you're saying, now there's more of a, a greener movement to be more connected. And people are thinking, especially like in the late 60s when there's the whole hippie movement, people started to realize like, oh, wow, there's something more here. Exactly. And I think even more so than the 40s and 50s, I would say the industrial the industrial revolution and the colonial period. So the mm. period where we're just so, I mean, I think the whole mindset during that time was really about conquering nature. And it was like going off and exploring and finding the places that have yet to be conquered and then corralling them. And, you know. Yeah. 
Totally agree. So let's talk about the ways that different sorts of beings can experience reality today, because in the past, the the environment kind of shaped how, let's say, barbarians or the Gallic people or the Romans experienced reality. And their brain structures changed as a result of mm-hmm. what their environment was, which probably yeah. changed how they perceived reality. But humans aren't the only things that exist. There are, like you said, there are bats that have a different, totally different form from us and therefore experience reality in a totally different way. Mm-hmm. Same thing with like bees. Bees can see a totally separate light spectrum than we can. They see more into the ultraviolet spectrum because right. when they can see that, they can see the pollen on um, on different flowers and they can mm-hmm. see if bees have been there before, if it's maybe a good flower for them to go to. So it's just a completely different way of seeing the world yeah. than what we're aware of. Well, one metaphor that I found useful is that the mind, the human mind in particular, is like a radio receiver. And you can tune in to different frequencies of consciousness. And mm-hmm. we're most able to tune in to those frequencies of consciousness that are most similar to us and that are strongest. So obviously, it's easier for us to vibe with and connect with other humans. And after that, it's easier for us to vibe with and connect with other mammals you know, especially right. dogs, with, which co-evolved with us. And then, right. you know, much less so can we vibe with a, a reptile and much less so even than that can we vibe with an insect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also I think rather than just them being similar to us, I think there also is the strength of the signal of consciousness. So I think, for instance, a forest has a stronger conscious signal than an anthill even though we typically think of ants as being more intelligent or smarter than trees, I think when you see like a whole forest, it's of a very different kind from humans, but Mm -hmm. I think it's a a strong signal, which is why people have these feelings of awe when they walk Mm -hmm. into these forests and they, they automatically feel like they're more at peace and and all of a sudden they want to care for their fellow earthlings a bit more than they do if they're living in a concrete jungle. Yeah, and and that might sound like a little bit of an out there statement to some people, but there's actually been research to show that trees and forests have some sort of consciousness. The trees can communicate with one another. So, for example, one of the things that was studied is some sort of threat coming to, let's say, one tree in the forest. Mm -hmm. That tree then produces some sort of chemical, whether it's a pheromone, I'm not exactly sure what the chemical was, but it was received by other trees. So they can start buffing up their natural defense mechanisms. And there's, there's also this communication network underneath the ground of mushrooms and fungi and, Mm -hmm. um, mycelia. Yeah. Mycelia. That's, that's the word. So if you, have you heard of the book, uh, hidden life of trees? No, I haven't. It's actually so it's a really fascinating book, but basically trees and they even ha- they exhibit some characteristics that humans do. So a birch is more likely to help out its fellow birch than this oak over here. Hmm. So there's there's this connection underneath the ground that 
a so let's say there's this one giant mother tree mm-hmm. that and you could think of this uh, like the Hyperion tree in the Redwood National Forest, the one that the tallest tree in the world. I think it's like 300 meters or something stupid. Oh, like I that. think I've actually been to that, that tree before. Really? Yeah. Man, I want to go there. But yeah. anyways, um, that so something that big acts as truly acts as some sort of a mother tree because it it actually has more nutrients coming into it because it's so tall and so established mm. that it can start sending nutrients to all of the trees around it. Right. It, so if one tree is feeble, they'll send more nutrients to that tree. They mm-hmm. can also, for instance, if a tree is infected with some disease, they can sort of quarantine that tree. Right. So I, I mean, I agree from, from what I've read, trees are very conscious. They do have a certain level of intelligence. And I think the idea of networks is really interesting to me. So you talked about the mycelial network, which is basically mm-hmm. the way that trees and forests communicate. And it's right. similar to a neural network, which humans use to communicate. And likewise, there's the internet. There's like mm-hmm. whatever is going on with cyberspace, like, you know, when like, like, where is the space where everyone is talking to each other online or like everyone is in some like, you know, virtual Fortnite video game realm? <laughs> like, where is that? I mean, it's got to be somewhere. It's not nowhere. So there mm-hmm. is some interesting things when you think about networks like human network, other animals networks, they all have their own sort of agenda. Um, but it's interesting how it all sort of fits together into this grand cosmic dance where it all seems to Mm -hmm. be coalescing in the same direction. Yeah. It's just hard to really imagine what it's like to be a tree. That's, that's the thing that I've been really struggling with is what, what does that consciousness even look like? And that's one of those things where I don't think we have the vocabulary to even describe it. Right, right. Well, I have something that might be helpful. So I think a way of, um, you know, another interesting parallel of different states of consciousness is between a child and an adult. So Mm. when you're a child, especially as a baby and up until you are aware of yourself, which tends to happen around, you know, just before or just around puberty, probably a little before you, your consciousness is more like a lantern which I've heard described as, whereas an adult consciousness is more like a spotlight. So the way you think about conscious attention now, it's like mm-hmm. you're, you're focusing specifically on one thing and you're like, okay, I gotta, gotta finish these emails. Okay, I gotta, I gotta go do this. I gotta pick up my clothes. And it's like you have this spotlight that's searching around and accomplishing things. Whereas yep. when you're a happy baby, you're just like, taking in good vibes from every single direction, (laughs) from every chakra. Like you see someone, you just smile at them, you beam at them. If someone gives like a scary face, then you're like freaked out and you're, (laughs) and it's like you are so truly living in the present. You're taking in all of this information from all around you. You don't quite know how to make sense of it. Your doors of perception are wide open. Right. Whereas when you're an adult, it's like, what happens over time is that another metaphor I found really useful is imagine your brain is covered in snow and every thought is like a sled that goes down the side of your brain. 
And the more times that thoughts go down the same path, the deeper that path gets, and the more that subsequent thoughts are drawn to that same path. So, mm -hmm. and this is what's known as the default mode network in uh -huh. scientific communities. So it's like, we create this profound default mode network, which allows us to not have to think so much about our day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. And and I've, I've become very aware of this just recently because I moved to a new house in, in Culver City. And so my day-to-day -day life got completely upheaved. Like I have to think, I had to think about, okay, where am I, where can I park outside my house? You know, where are the nearby stores? Like if I need to get some food, like where should I go? You know, how do I get to work? What's my new commute? Like how long does it take? What are the best routes? All of these things that I had mapped out in my default mode network when I lived in the Palisades were you appended. So mm -hmm. it really made me aware of that. And I think that's when people think about reality, adults, they're thinking yep. about their default mode network. And it's almost like themselves, their sense of who I am, their ego, is their default mode network. It's the deep path that they've burrowed in their own brain of how they yeah. think of the world and how they think of things. Whereas we forget that when you're a child, it's not like that at all. You have just completely untouched powder that you can yeah. think of about anything in any direction. Yeah, and, and to take this analogy, you know, into like what is actually happening neurophysiologically when you have certain thoughts. So if you become an expert at something, your neuronal pathways are very, very strong mm. and very well paved, you could say. And with a baby, there are not strong connections, but they're going, your, your brain and your neurons are firing in all directions. Right. And and with with more established adults, we've been through life and we know we've been, you know, adaptive to our situations, but when you have any sort of routine, the pathways in your brain are stronger and the other pathways that you might have explored while you were a child are not there anymore or they're right. just not able to be explored easily. Yeah, that's but, why they call it the curse of knowledge. Right. Yeah, and the so I've heard that analogy before. I, I'm happy you brought it up because one of the ways that you can add fret oh actually I'll get to that. But have have you read the book How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan? I just finished it really 2 days ago. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Um so I like when they were talking about how a baby's brain is basically like an adult's brain on psychedelics. Right, it's, right. It has very similar characteristics when they do some sort of um, brain scan. And yeah, that well, that, that's why like child brain. psychologists have been really interested actually in psychedelics because it puts you more in that childlike state. And I think it's, you know, psychedelics get vilified because it's the antithesis of conforming to society. And like the hippie movement definitely shows that, oh, if people open their minds and they go back to what it's like to being, you know, to being like a child, even if only for a couple hours, they're less likely to agree to be sent to Vietnam for some right. bogus cause. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so obviously society wasn't too keen on the whole idea of expanding your mind and going back into that, you know, opening the doors of perception. Mm -hmm. But I think 
it's very similar the state of, of your mind when you're taking psychedelics to when you're deep in meditation or like I said with near-death experiences or or when you're like a child I think they're all quite similar it's like you have that lantern of consciousness and when you talk about what's real you are perceiving a much broader spectrum of reality when you're in mm -hmm. those states now whether whether that is actually what the world is like mm -hmm. is another question but it certainly has more primary information from which to create a better model of reality right yeah and and you can also think of psychedelics as kind of like you were saying when you open your doors of perception and if you think about how little we're actually experiencing about the true nature of reality just because our yeah. senses our senses aren't all the way there. Exactly. We, we can't fully comprehend all of the different waves going on. We can't fully comprehend what it's like to see the next dimension. Exactly. I mean, you talked about bees can see ultraviolet wavelengths mm -hmm. that we can't. Uh, bats can hear wavelengths that we can't hear. Every sense that we have, there are animals that do it better than us. There are animals that do it worse than us. And if you believe in string theory, there is way more that we aren't experiencing than what we are experiencing. Yeah. And even the non-string theory theories of everything. So there's this other one called, I think it's a theory about some mathematical structure called E8, which goes up into eight or nine dimensions, I think. Oh. And and the the smallest building blocks of that structure is kind of like the fundamental um, particle of the universe. And honestly, I think you'd be interested in this because they try to unify consciousness with this um, theory of everything with this mm. higher dimensional space. I'll, I'll send you some stuff. Yeah. Too. that's And we'll, we'll put it in the show notes too. it. It's a really interesting. I know it's uh, controversial in the scientific community, but right. so are all the good ideas. Yeah, I mean, one thing's for certain, and that there's not just three dimensions, right? And that's all we yeah. can experience, really. And I think yeah. the other thing that makes it really difficult to map out what reality is, what reality actually is, is the fact that we're trapped within time. We're trapped within the arrow of time. And we know from Einstein's theory of relativity, you know, we've known for a long time now that time is not what it seems to us. Time for us is just relative based on how the earth is rotating, how far it is from the sun, how much mass everything has. And if you go to any other spot in the cosmos, your experience of time is going to be way different. And if you're a higher dimensional being, then you would be able to traverse time in the same way that we can traverse space. You can go backwards and forwards, left and right. Mm -hmm. um, so when we think about reality, most people think about the cause and effect reality, where it's like, oh, this is what's real. You know, it's like, oh, there was a big bang and then this stuff formed and then here we are and then in the future. And it's like this very sequential series of events. But there's no reason to think of it as sequential. In fact, there's evidence that it's not sequential. There's evidence that there is a multiverse, that there, and, and that's why this, the whole idea about death is kind of absurd, because death, 
the the tragedy of death only really makes sense if you think of it as a linear as time being linear Mm. oh yeah that's interesting because how can you die like how can it be tragic if you're always alive like if you've lived for a moment you've lived forever yeah yeah that's really interesting and so how do you think this this changes into the future like how how do we go from where we are now to maybe perceiving death in another way or or truly unlocking some fundamental features of perceiving reality yeah so i think as we look into the future there are certain trends that are going to have a big impact you know i already talked about from a technological perspective the fact that AI may be able to create a better model of reality in a way that humans are too limited. And if we combine those insights with virtual reality and with a way that we can experience what reality may actually be like by augmenting our senses Mm -hmm. or even just painting a better visual of what reality may be like with all of its many dimensions and many networks all intertwined, that could evolve our our sense of reality. And then just from like a practical sense of what do most people believe? I mean, you know, most of the world, which is 74% of the world is religious. And, you know, Mm. I've, I think there's a lot of good things that come from religion. I was raised Catholic and there are certainly are good things about, about the moral teachings of religions. But I think it limits us in a, in a way where people, first of all, a lot of religions, they make it all about us. Like, oh, God created everything for us. It's all about humans. Like, this is basically like, oh, yeah, we're supposed to have dominion over everything and we're the most important ones and everything was created for us. And, you know, but mm-hmm. when the world ends, you know, with end times, then Jesus will come back and he'll save everyone. So it's almost like a cop-out. It's like, we don't have to worry about climate change because the Bible already predicted this, and in the end, Jesus is going to come and save us, and that only means that we're closer to reaching the nice grand finale where everything's wonderful for all eternity. And I think that really holds us back from being able to take the steps that we need to get back in tune with nature. And I think it also prevents us from truly being spiritual in a one-to-one relationship with us and Gaia or us and the cosmos. Because it's like, you know, when people who have authentic mystical experiences, whether it's through psychedelics or through deep meditation and reflection or living in a cave or whatever it is, those are real first-person accounts of what it's like to be a conscious being within this web of consciousness. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of times with religion, it's like, it's like we're basically trying to replicate the mystical experiences that Jesus had, for instance. So like, if you think about what the last supper was actually like, it was probably such an incredible, incredibly powerful, spiritual, emotional experience. I mean, Mm -hmm. you've got this enlightened being Jesus, that's there, that who knows he's going to die, who still has nothing but kindness to say to his friends, who's willingly going and sacrificing for a greater purpose. And to just be in that, in that space with that sort of energy and that mm-hmm. sort of a mindset, 
has to have been so powerful that people couldn't help but keeping to tell the story and tell the story. And now when you go to church, we're still recreating that experience. We're still doing the stuff and, you know, Michael at least Pond, attempting to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's the whole point is that it's not a first person mystical experience. It's like a, it's a second per, it's like a second one layer removed mystical experience. And Michael Pollan even talks about the placebo effect of taking communion. Yep. Because it's like, oh, this is really the body and the blood. You take this and then people all of a sudden they feel more holy. But a lot of these, you know, shamanistic or druid tribes or even in Roman times, the Eleusinian mysteries or the, you know, the mushroom cults of the Aztecs and all of these other cultures, which were a lot closer to the earth, like the American Indians with peyote, they would actually have mystical experiences. It's not like they're just right. like play acting. They would really have them. And so I think if we can get back to that, where, you know, ideally, I think if we even had sort of rites of passage around, you know, spiritual experiences, mm -hmm. you know, culturally, I think that would be a great step forward. Yeah. And so we do see a couple of trends going forward that give me hope because you do see people still wanting to be spiritual, but also giving up maybe the more naive approaches to spirituality that might be considered religion, like Christianity, Islam, um, Hinduism, you know, all of the, the major religions. But there's this, like alongside that trend, there's also the trend of people actually doing research on psychedelics. It's not such a taboo subject anymore. Right. Well, did you see yesterday that Oregon now has magic mushrooms on the ballot to be legalized medically in the state? Oh, so for like psych, um, psychology, like therapists and stuff? Yeah, so in the same way that you can prescribe benzos, which are horribly addictive and people talk about the opioid crisis in America. Oh, yeah. And I mean, compared to that, and also compared to the success rates, taking psilocybin has shown incredible, um, incredible results as far as people overcoming their depression, overcoming their anxiety, even overcoming alcoholism, overcoming their yeah. addiction to smoking. And part yeah. of that, the reason why it's like, okay, why are these psychedelics so effective? It's because you are remembering that there's another way to be. You don't have to be so deeply ingrained in your thought patterns, like you know the metaphor of the, the sled slopes. You can go back to where you have all of this fresh powder and you can think of things in a new way and you're not yeah. beholden to the same uh, cognitive traps where you're like, you know, just thinking about, oh, I need a cigarette. Oh, I'm the type of person that's not strong enough to not have a cigarette. Oh, yeah. I have all of these connotations with smoking as being a relief because of my days in college or because of my former mm -hmm. relationships or whatever it is. People get get trapped in these downward spirals and you know, therapy is great, but it hasn't actually proven to be that effective. I mean, talking about your problems, it feels good to get it off your chest, but it doesn't fundamentally change your uh, your the structure of your brain. Exactly. And same thing with antidepressants. You know, antidepressants basically mask the problem because, yeah, you feel better while you're while you're on them. But if you go off them, then you're still back in square one. 
Whereas if you have some sort of revelation, some sort of mystical experience where you're like, I get it now. Like, mm-hmm. it, you know, and it's so funny hearing the, the revelations in Michael Pollan's book because it's the oh, most seemingly obvious stuff ever. <laughs> but it's so true. They're like, like one woman was like, I get it now. Love is the answer. It's all about love. <laughs> and yeah, it seems so obvious. But if you actually like know, like you know that to be true firsthand because of some revelation rather than just being told that by your therapist, that's powerful. And some other person was like, oh, write this down, write this down. You need to eat well, exercise, and stretch. <laughs> and, it's like, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, yeah, that's that's true. I mean, but... Yeah, there is the... I like the other one, too, where she's talking about smoking. And, and this person who just came out of this psychedelic, I guess it was probably mushrooms, she just comes out and is like, you know what? I just realized that smoking and killing myself early wasn't worth it and you know that's so obvious you can tell yourself this well and also i think the same woman she had this this uh intense visual visualization of herself as a gargoyle like a stone Mm -hmm. gargoyle like hunched over smoking and just inhaling this like toxic material until she was coughing and it just hit her like with this this uh, vivid visualization, and now every time she thinks about smoking, she that vision comes back, and she just it just disgusts her, and that is so much more powerful than any statistics about health or anything like that. Like having that to go back to, so powerful. Yeah, and I just I love the fact that it's actually changing you physiologically because with depression it's not the fault of the person that's depressed it's not and it's not the fault of the person that's addicted like the brain is structured now let's for someone that's addicted in a way that truly makes them almost unable to resist and when you can break these loops these pattern loops the the whole world changes. Like you don't have to smoke anymore. You don't have to be depressed. And like you said, we just look at the world in a totally different way. Yeah. It's like you're loosening the chokehold of the ego. Mm -hmm. And I love another metaphor that I, I mean, I find helpful, but it is confusing to a lot of people is Douglas Harding's notion of, of having no head. So Douglas Harding talks about how he was walking in the Himalayas And then he was struck by this profound realization that he doesn't have a head. And what he meant by that is that, you know, most adults, they think of themselves as being in the center of their brain, just a little bit behind the eyes. And they're looking at the world from there. And they're very aware of the fact that they look a certain way, that they have this certain body. And they're very self-conscious. And you're like looking at it like, you know, some sort of like spotlight being. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you instead look at the world as if you're looking at it through the shining of your heart, not through Mm -hmm. the eyes of your head, then that can help you get closer to the state of the lantern consciousness of being a child, where it's like Mm -hmm. you're just emanating love and and conscious awareness in all directions from all of your chakras, rather Mm -hmm. than just being this like, you know, this like, being that's like looking through its two eyes and it's like a very like you know i mean alan watts talks about it as like 
you're inside, you're trapped inside a bag of skin. But that's not what's happening at all. Really what's happening is you go beyond your skin. You have an electromagnetic field around you. You have yeah. a conscious field around you. So you can perceive things, you know, just like how if, if someone like sort of sneaks up behind you, you can kind of sense them, even if you don't hear them or see them. You do have conscious awareness all around you. And if you can tap into that and strengthen that, then that's powerful. Yeah, yeah and those that's been measured before too, that field around your body, whether it's a magnetic field or a conscious field. We don't really know much about it, but it's there. Right. Um, and what you're saying about the headless guy, you know, that's, that's actually really interesting too. Because what came to my mind is what if consciousness and your experience of reality is based largely on your senses? So your eyes are, at least in my mind, one of the most powerful senses that you have. Mm-hmm. But when you realize that your eyes aren't the only thing, you can feel all over your body. You have senses. You can you can feel right. the bottom of your foot. You can feel the middle of your, you know, middle, like, pinky toe or something. Like, all of this contributes to your conscious experience. But since the the mind and the eyes are so, like, closely knit and up there, you just feel like that's where you are. Is like, in your right, head. Right, right. Well, and Sam Harris makes the point that even if your brain was located in your stomach, you might still have the experience of thinking of yourself as up in your head, just simply because that's where your eyes are, that's where your ears are, that's where your nose is. Mm -hmm. That's where sort of the grand central station of your senses coalesce. Okay. Well, I'm glad that that's been validated because I just kind of (laughs) threw it out there. Um, So that that kind of uh, makes me question, and we had, you know talked about this a little bit but how does how does someone like helen keller experience reality like we she doesn't have the eyes she doesn't even have the ears so where where is her conscious emanating from is it more in the center of her body the feel or the smell you know right what do you think that that is like yeah so that i think that is probably closer to a childlike version of of consciousness because Mm -hmm. you're not building a model of the world in the way that that most people are where it's so dependent on vision or hearing i mean i i frankly do not know what it would be like to be i mean obviously i don't know what it would be like to be helen keller but um i mean for one the fact that she cannot hear anything or could not hear anything hearing is where we get our sense of time and so to not have as strong of a sense of time would completely change everything. Right. Um, and so her default mode network might be much less strong or much less ingrained than ours. Um, although who knows, maybe she has some different default mode network that's all based on feel. Um, yeah. Because your brain structure completely changes in response to whatever it has to adapt to. So right. for her, her brain structure, and it, I bet um, neuroscientists would have loved to study, you know, what is actually going on in her mind. It has to look like a totally different species. Oh yeah, yeah. And and that kind of implies that her experience and her objective or her subjective reality is 
very different from us and it might yeah. even look more like a bat or a, a naked mole rat or you know something yeah. along those lines obviously there's there's way more brain power so like what what does that even look like when you can just be there in your mind but without something tying you really to reality because if you think of yourself just early in the morning when your eyes are closed it's like you still don't really have a grasp on time you don't really have a grasp on anything as you're in this this phase yeah but imagine being there all the time yeah I, I think it's really helpful when we're thinking about reality to consider the edge cases of the human experience like people mm -hmm. like Helen Keller because not everyone is experiencing the world as able-bodied humans are mm -hmm. another edge case of the human experience that I think is noteworthy are split brain patients so right this used to be quite standard for people who were schizophrenics or especially when they had super intense seizures that were life-threatening what they would do is they would slice the corpus callosum mm -hmm. and which is the exact middle of the brain like if you sliced it right down and, and there's a lot of connections basically connecting each side of the brain and when you don't yeah. have those connections anymore yeah know, and it's it's, it's interesting because each side can function on its own but some really weird things happen when you don't have those connections. So for instance, and there are some great videos on YouTube that show this, but mm -hmm. for instance, you know, your right side of your brain is how you view through your left eye. Your left side of yep. your brain is how you view through your right eye. And your, your left side has uh, language, right? Or is it your right side? Yeah, I think it's the left side. Uh, I think, I think the right. I think it's the right. Yeah, that's so like the your right is the creative side. Right. And... So your so your right side has language. So they'll do these experiments where they'll ask someone like, "What are you holding in your hand?" And in the left hand they're holding an apple, in their right hand they're holding a banana, and they'll say, "Oh, I'm holding an apple," because their right side is the one that deals with language. But then with their other hand, they'll like show them like banana. <laughs> But yeah. because their other side can't speak. Um, but then, so people might say, okay, well, who are you? Like, where is the I within this person? And people will say, oh, well, it's probably the side that has language. But then on the other hand, the left side is where you have your more visual aspects. So you wouldn't be able to recognize your close friends and family with just the right language side of your brain. So if the true, if truly who is you is the side that's the language side, then you don't recognize your closest friends, family, and loved ones. So the, the point of all of this is that there's no singular you. There are many yous fighting for prominence within your consciousness. And I think that is also a really good insight that there's no, if you look for the thinker of thoughts, there is no thinker of thoughts. You will not find one because there are many voices speaking out within ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's what um, neuroscientists kind of say when, you know, they kind of laugh at that sort of notion that there is a thinker of thoughts because you have this, it's such a complex network. You can't pin it on an origin. There might not even be an origin. It might right. just be a never ending cycle that, you know, the origin was when you were born, yeah. but there is no, there's no origin other than when you were born. And the emergent properties of what, where your brain goes is how you're experiencing reality. And the, 
there's also this hierarchical system. It's like on the very lowest levels, let's say you're having millions of little thoughts. And then as you go higher up in the hierarchy, you have kind of a, a management that is like, okay, let's filter out these thoughts and keep these ones. And then you go all the way up to the top yeah. and you, you seemingly have one single thought, but in reality it was thousands or millions of thoughts that made up this single thought. There's, right. there's not really a origin that you can really pin this single thought on. Yeah, consciousness is a process. You are a process. You are a process by which the universe is experiencing itself, as Alan Watts has said. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the, like, the how do we actually change our views and our experience of reality going forward? Like, what are, what do these trends that we've talked about lead to? Like you said, the virtual yeah. reality. Yeah, and, so I think we should do the worst case, best case, most likely. Okay. So as far as the worst case of how our perception of reality can go, in my mind, it's basically going further in the direction of the industrial revolution, religious fervor, colonialization, mastery over nature. If we continue to go in that direction, which is like similar to sort of the way Trump views the world, where it's mm -hmm. just like everything is just meant to be exploited and right. just used for the benefit of us now. And it's not like everything ties together in some grand way and we got to actually have some responsibility for our planet and our fellow earthlings. That's the worst case scenario. And I think, unfortunately, religion can be weaponized for those ends. Right. Um, so I guess my worst case scenario would be a future scenario where the worst aspects of religion are amplified and where our sense of being in tune with nature and, and wanting to help fellow earthlings and not just being selfish. I think where, where that is uh, also amplified. Yeah. So that would be my worst case scenario. Yeah, um, that kind of echoes mine. Yeah. You, that's actually very close to what what I was going to say the the only addition i had is the the fact that people are becoming more disconnected it doesn't even uh, have to be the cause of religion it doesn't have to be the cause of anything else besides the sheer fact that we have technology that disconnects us from living things so if you're right. living in the top floor of New York City, and the last time you stepped on earth, you know, soil, not road, especially with bare feet, not, you know, rubber shoes that totally insulate you from everything. The, that sort of disconnection, I think, in hundred, in let's say a hundred years, is going to be so prevalent, possibly in the worst case, that you know, in these giant megacities, nobody's even going to know what true nature is, except right. for these, these, you know, maybe some tribes that live out in the Amazon, like the very little remaining part of the Amazon forest. It's like not, not just being disconnected with the world, but we've, we've destroyed the world and, and the, the earth's, you know, unified consciousness in the process like not only are we becoming disconnected but we destroy others consciousness the the ones yeah. that we don't care about 
And I, I actually, to add to that, I think there are two directions of the worst case scenario that we can go. And it might mm -hmm. just depend on the person of which direction they go. But the two directions are thinking of yourself as a puppet and thinking of yourself as God. And I think mm -hmm. as technology advances from a puppet perspective, like already, I mean, the, the Uber driver who killed that person, there were signs that part of the reason why he killed that person is because he couldn't take it anymore. He felt like he didn't have any free will or any control that he was basically just being told go from this point A to point B to point C and he was like this cog in a machine and he felt like he didn't have any volition. And so I think as we get more automated, as self-driving cars become a thing, as the world becomes more efficient and more you know, automated, people will oftentimes feel like they are a puppet and that they're not, that like everything is just happening to them. They're not doing anything. And that can really take out the meaning of your life and it can make everything feel hopeless. On the flip yep. side, imagine you're some like a high powered CEO who is able to profit from the best of technological advancements and with the snap of your fingers, the wave of your hand, or even with thinking about it, you can basically materialize anything you could possibly want because your bank account is big enough to handle it. You can 3D print a mm. submarine on your front lawn if you <laughs> want it. Yeah. Um, but like in that sense, you might think of yourself as God. Like, oh, I am the, or I am the orchestrator of everything and look how important I am. And everyone else is like mostly just subjugated to me. And that can create tremendous amounts of hubris. And I don't think that leads to happiness either. So my two worst case scenarios are people thinking of themselves as puppets in the future or people thinking of themselves as God. And both of those are probably going to happen to some extent. Yeah. Man, let's lighten this up with a best case scenario. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> um, so one of the things that I would love to happen, and we've we touched on this, is having some sort of augmented or virtual reality that can expand the the bandwidth of our own perception, mm -hmm. whether that's seeing different wavelengths. So this might even be extremely helpful when it comes to health conscious things. So we can physically see waves that are damaging to our bodies. Yeah. Because right now we can see a light spectrum that is fine. You know, it's fine on our eyes. It's fine on our bodies. But what we don't see is like the super fast wavelengths. So these might be like the 5G wavelengths, yeah. the, the wavelengths that they'll use in 5G. And if we could see that and kind of have our our brains see these these waves and be like okay we need to avoid this part we need to move away from here now because it's dangerous like that that would just be good for our own safety yeah or and then if we can see more let's say we can see these auras or these vibes around people that kind of give off what, the fact that this person this is a good person or this right. is not a good person that yeah. would also make the world a lot better place because then you can, one, you can help the people that are giving off bad vibes. You, you can give them some sort of rehab to make them, I don't know, a better person. Or if it's so bad, maybe you just need to put them 
somewhere else, like maybe not isolate them, but put them in a different place from where you are. Like that might be more predictive of bad behavior than anything else than we can conceive of. I don't know. Yeah. And also if you were able to measure conscious states where you can measure the amount of conscious joy or conscious misery that would be affected by certain policies. And if we can start making decisions based on that, like from where we, I mean, on the future of food, we talked a lot about how horrible the factory farming and everything like that is, and just our utter disrespect for the conscious states of beings that are not humans and dogs. And basically, right. If we can get beyond that to where we really care about the conscious well-being of all earthlings, And in my best case scenario, similar to what we've talked about in some other episodes where it's a return to nature, but with the benefit of technology. So imagine if we take out all the concrete, every, you know, all of this destruction and pollution that we've added to the environment, we replace Mm -hmm. it with green fields, animals running freely, but we also have the added benefit of technology. So we can still communicate with each other instantly we can still measure all of the different uh, indicators of how well the earth is doing, how Mm -hmm. well different conscious beings are doing, and we can make more intelligent decisions. And then with artificial intelligence, if we can get a better grasp of what some grand unified theory of everything is, and we can help convey that to the next generation and continue to build on it and not have these, you know, dogmatic beliefs that, we just like because they're comfortable and we've thought about them for a long time, but we really are forging new ground and, and taking in inputs from all, all directions. That would be the best case scenario. Yeah. And then at at some point there might even become, there might be a point where we transcend the current reality that, that humans and earthlings experience. Because right now, like we've talked about many times, we're living in a three, maybe four, depending on what you consider time dimensional, space and if there's some way to transcend that and i i have a i'm not optimistic that virtual reality is going to be a thing that can help us perceive it because i think we're still limited by the structure of our brains right right we're still but perceiving with the same senses it's just the contents mm -hmm. are different with virtual reality so if you can change the actual structure, if we can somehow merge with this bio- or this technological yeah. sort of being, like like an AI or something, that might be the thing that helps us transcend. And then we don't even have to think about generations because we don't have to think about time the same way. We right. don't have to think about anything the same way. Yeah, I mean, imagine if you could enhance all of your senses to be as great as what is known in the whole animal kingdom, to get this broad spectrum of hearing, seeing, smelling, feeling. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, if we can find some way to get ourselves out of the arrow of time, maybe by going into some virtual, not virtual reality, but like di- like digitizing ourselves or and, and oh, yeah. all, all of these are very, uh, you know, obviously they're horrible things that could happen, unintended consequences. But if you give us enough time and if we don't kill ourselves on the road to getting there, I think it is somewhat inevitable that we will transcend the limitations of our senses 
and dimensions as we are living in it right now. Yeah, and it's so inconceivable to think. I mean, what what is it even like to live in four-dimensional space, too? Because yeah. if you think of going from two to three, three dimensions, almost all the space on three dimensions is hovering literally right next to the two-dimensional thing, but the two-dimensional being could not experience that three-dimensional space. Right, and so we so, probably would need more than just our standard brain. We would need to augment our intelligence by either yeah. tapping into a digital intelligence, like mm -hmm. brain-machine interface, or maybe it's like somehow we're able to actually tap into the greater conscious energy of right. what's going around, which some, some, some people believe that it's actually consciousness is very closely related to light, which is... Oh, like, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that could be one of the tools of psychedelics. So we're still in such an infancy of psychedelics right now. We don't understand what they're doing. I think we don't understand a lot of things. But let's say let's say a thousand years down the road, if we manage to become a relatively peaceful race and not destroy ourselves, what does the technological innovation look like, especially when it comes to understanding the brain? Because yeah. we don't know anything. And what happens when we truly understand what psychedelics are doing and the types of perceptions and type or the doors of perception that are being opened with these different states of mind? You know, yeah, those good questions. So Again, let, let's do the. Like, should we do the most likely? Yeah, and go then ahead. close it out. So the most likely scenario is obviously a hybrid of our best and worst case. I strongly believe that we will transcend our current view of reality, like, like I said, if we live for long enough. However, mm -hmm. I do think there's going to be quite a resistance among people who are too tightly wound up with their egos to relinquish it. And unfortunately, people tend to pass down to the next generations their own beliefs around what's real or what's important. So I think what we're going to see is a growing proportion of society that views reality more closely to what it actually is versus this parody of reality that we think of right now. Um, but I think there is still going to be, you know, a majority of people, at least for the next like 50 years, let's say who are going to think of reality as like, oh no, reality is just these tables and what we see in the <laughs> world of forms. And yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So what I was thinking for the likely scenario is there will, I'm optimistic actually about the upcoming generations. The, the thing that I don't know is how often does this happen? That the young generation seems to be more enlightened than the older generations because this has happened before mm -hmm. will we follow the same path you know we come we become old and jaded and our ski slopes are very heavily skied and we right. you know we don't we don't veer from those well that's, that's why like wisdom is having those deeply ingrained ski slopes where yeah. you're like oh i've been here before i know what to do but that's why true wisdom is knowing that you know nothing meaning having yeah. no ski slopes or no faith in your ski slopes as being true. Mm -hmm. So you, you know, you try to take a different path anytime you can. Right. And I think 
I think with so much information out there and all of this technological advancement, and we have people in power that are actually doing good things, like in Elon Musk mm-hmm. or um, you know Jeff Bezos is arguable in a lot of you know cases of how Amazon employees are treated, but that's not necessarily a direct decision by Bezos. You know, he's still trying to do good things in the world and trying to be innovative and make it a better place. Um, and I think there's probably going to be some sort of positive shift in the entire perspective of the nature of reality, at least in the U.S. and similar, like modernized and, you know, basically non, not China, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, but you a lot of post automation, like after the, like, let's say we implement universal basic income, all of the work is being done by machines for the most part, people can more spend their time doing what they want. You think that's going to usher in a greater level of, of understanding? Give, so given the fact that we're at universal basic income, if we get to that point, I think it's more likely that people will achieve, you know, what we were just talking about. Yeah. If we have automation and there's not some sort of safety net where people can freely explore their own mind, then, then it kind of tends towards the worst case. Right. Um, but yeah, I think it would it would tend towards the best case if we, you know, take the the right steps along the way, and people have the freedom to experience and are given, you know, maybe even they're encouraged to experience different things. Yeah. And virtual reality, honestly, might be one of the catalysts here. Because if they realize that they can experience a totally separate world from the real world, what does that do to how they perceive things? Yeah. I'm I'm less optimistic about virtual reality just because it is like a human generated sort of construct. Right. I think I, I would put more faith in the plant based psychedelics and because I feel like True. that really is the f- we are getting the knowledge directly from nature. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, if there's a way we can combine the best of both worlds, oh yeah, that would be an awesome future. Yeah, and you might even we might even see that sort of stuff become mainstream right. medical. And, I mean, you imagine know, if, every time someone turns 18, they have this ceremony where not only are they given psychedelics in the proper set and setting, but they're also told everything that we know about the nature of reality up until right now, and they're guided and they're they're given this other way of being. We're going to talk yeah. about what yeah, has totally happened, agree. what is currently happening. Awesome. And well, what I think that's a good place to end it. The past, the present, and the future.